Senators fire shot across the bow of ASIC financial protection racket and Afghanistan. We broke it, but you can't fix it. Coming up on today's show. Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 29th of October 2021. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Elisa. And on today's show, we have two topics. Senators fire shot across the bow of ASIC financial protection racket. I'm going to tell you about some great breakthroughs we've just achieved in our uh, campaign to expose um, this protection racket that ASIC has become. And secondly, Afghanistan, we broke it, but you can't fix it. And we'll discuss how uh, those that got this war started are refusing to rebuild Afghanistan, but at the same time, slamming countries like China for daring to go in and rebuild. Uh, now, don't forget, if you like the show, to hit the like button. Uh, subscribe so that you're alerted of new shows coming up and you can also hit the notification bell so that you're alerted to that uh, and share this as widely as possible so we can get these ideas out for far and wide as possible. So firstly today, Senators fire shot across the bow of ASIC financial protection racket. Now last week on the show, Craig, you and Robbie uh, revealed excellent progress in our campaign um, to have an inquiry in the parliament uh, into a key um, issue which is uh, where ASIC neglected to uh, alert elderly citizens um, across the country but mainly in Western Australia who fell prey to a scheme uh, called the Sterling First Scheme where they were sucked in basically to uh, a scheme where they were meant to be able to uh, pay in advance their rent essentially uh, and then you know when they passed away um, what was remaining would be would go to their uh, families and so forth uh, however this ASIC did not do what they should have done and alerted people to the fact that this was basically a Ponzi scheme run by people the same directors who had been um, in charge of previous types of schemes that had also uh, seen many, many people and individuals ripped off. So basically last week we had two motions that got up into the Senate. The first was to get that inquiry into Sterling first, which could be the tip of the iceberg to open up a whole you know, host of similar financial schemes that have ripped people off. And then secondly, um, there was also another motion which we talked about, which um, demanded that the the government must hand over a number of documents. This was a production of documents order, which um, the documents involved were supposedly an inquiry or an investigation that the government made into ASIC's inquiry in this matter. But the first update that we have to tell you is that uh, the head of ASIC, Joe Longo, basically sent an excuse letter saying, sorry, we can't uh, put forward those documents and we'll come to why that is in a moment uh, but secondly in uh, the course of these letters it was also revealed that on the 15th of October um, ASIC filed a brief of evidence with the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions meaning that they are pursuing the case but that date the 15th of October basically came um, weeks after 
a massive campaign where the Sterling First victims started to hit the streets, started to call their senators. They had a lot of meetings and delegations visiting senators. And therefore, this is really a key victory that advanced uh, this investigation, which would not have otherwise occurred. And you can read an article um, written by Denise Braley, the uh, Banking and Finance Com Consumer Support Association head, who's been a key advocate for this group. Uh, it's in our Australian Alert Service this week, and you can find it also on uh, the Facebook page of the Sterling Australian Senate Inquiry Group. Headline, Sterling First Drama Ignites in the Senate, Victory for the Victims of Sterling. And it really gives you an excellent sense of the campaign these guys and other groups like ourselves have participated in that has brought this to the fore in the parliament in a brilliant way. I think Elise, it's really important for people to note this is the Senate doing its job. This is what it's there for. You've got people like Senator Deb O'Neill that's taken this, this on because she sees the injustice so she's now using the mechanisms that are in this country in the parliament to do it. You've seen, you'll see Senator Malcolm Roberts doing the same thing. And regular viewers already know about our campaign for Christine Holgate and so forth and the corruption there. This is the job of the Senate. This is what it's supposed to do. So when we go to the next election, hmm. I hope we get a Senate that's just as functional as this one's been. Because people, the government will always say, oh no, the Senate's dysfunctional, it doesn't work. Because it won't rubber stamp the legis their legislation. It's better off to have a Senate that can deliberate and cause problems for a sitting government so that legislation that does go through is good legislation because it's being tested. Yeah. That's our system. Because it's a house of review and yeah. that's what it should do. And we've got a great example of that which we'll go through now because it's Senate estimates on Thursday in the Economics Legislation Committee. Um, as you said, uh, a number of senators, Deb O'Neill, Malcolm Roberts, um, Anthony Chisholm, Rex Patrick, there were others, but we'll focus on three of them here now. And we want to show videos of, of Deb O'Neill, Malcolm Roberts and Senator Anthony Chisholm who all... Uh, brought this issue of ASIC not doing its job, uh, you know, allowing the truth about such uh, operations as Sterling First to come forward and why that is, because it, obviously it's from government top down in directing that agency. Um, so first of all, um, we'll show Deb O'Neill, ALP Senator. She asked Joe Longo, the head of ASIC, why they were not handing over these documents, which we referenced earlier, that they were asked to provide the government review that was made of ASIC's conduct in regard to Sterling First. And you'll see in the answer um, that Longo, and in some parts of these clips, you'll see one of his sidekicks also, uh, they say uh, they need a further week or two because they're concerned about prejudicing ongoing investigations um, to which O'Neill, and this clip's not included there, but O'Neill went on to say she thought it was spurious to block these documents coming out on those grounds and she denounced the culture of secrecy that goes on. Uh, and she also asked that the documents be provided without redaction to the committee in the interim until they are released publicly. Um, so we'll go on with that clip right now. Thank you. First of all, could I just... Uh note that um, the government came back to uh, the PJC committee requesting an extension on the OPD, um, which was motion 1249 with regard to Stirling, um, the Stirling collapse. Um, ASIC has been ordered by the Senate to produce documents regarding these inquiries um, made by and actions taken by ASIC. 
uh, in regard to the Stirling Group. There are four documents that have been identified as relevant. Uh, at this point of time, we're two days past the due date for the documents to be produced. Uh, could we possibly have an update on the timeline for these documents being handed to the Senate? Uh, thanks for that question, Senator. The, my understanding is we wrote to Senator Hume um, asking uh, for more time. Uh, we wrote there were a number of issues that we needed to work through before we could uh, hand the documents over. I, um, I, I don't have a specific day in mind that, that we'll be doing that, but I don't know whether our general counsel, Mr. Savandra, can give us any more. Uh, I think we were, we were needing about a week uh, to, to complete our processes. Sorry, I just missed what you said Sorry. then, Mr. Um, Longo. Your meeting when did you say? I think the I think we, we I think we will need a week or so to complete our processes because the the um, as the letter points out um, we've referred uh, aspects of the matter to the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions. Uh, there are named uh, individuals in the material. And uh, we're just working through a process to ensure that our, uh, the integrity of our ongoing investigation and that referral isn't undermined. We're certainly going to produce the documents that we just need some time to work through any need for uh, uh, very specific <clears throat> redactions. Uh, but I might hand over to Mr. Savanda in case I've got any of that. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. Um, um, I think we're working as quickly as we can, given the issues that uh, Mr Longo referred to. Um, I, I would observe that the, the documents that have been requested um, cut across the current ongoing investigation. And as Mr Longo says, um, uh, we have referred a brief to the Commonwealth Director for assessment that investigation Ongoing. Um, so ASIC is likely um, through the Minister to make public interest immunity claims over the document through redactions. Uh, this, this will take some time and, and it's necessary for us to therefore consult with people who we assess will be uh, materially adversely affected. Um, we're hoping that we'll be able to complete that within the next week, but um, uh, we're, you know, we're working as quickly as we can. So, um, Senator, um, without making any commitments, I, I would hope that we would be able to produce the document um, during the course of the next week, at, at the latest, the week after. And in the middle of Deb O'Neill's questioning, just watch this clip because the head of the committee actually intervened to um, mentioned the fact that this was going to be the subject of a Senate inquiry. So look at Joe Longo's response. And Senator O'Neill, no. just one quick follow-up question on that, and I'll direct this to Chair Longo. Chair, are you aware that there has been a referral to a reference committee in relation to the Stirling matter um, and that uh, a request is being made of ASIC to make a submission um, in relation to that important uh, uh, references committee matter? Uh, Senator, I think I can, you can be assured uh, I'm very aware uh, of that of that inquiry, and um, and will be uh, obviously fully cooperate with that inquiry when the time comes in a few weeks. Yeah. I don't think they know how to cover their ass. No, it might be a bit hard. 
getting too big. <laughs> the cracks are emerging. Um, and we're going to watch Malcolm Roberts now. And I'll, I'll just put up while I'm introducing it a tweet from Denise Braley because she said senators like Malcolm Roberts really saved the day because they came in and shot this crucial, um, fired this crucial shot, I should say, across the bow. Uh, which indicates what is to come and people like John, Joe Longo are going to be squirming. So Malcolm Roberts here raises this crucial, crucial question of whether ASIC um, classified these tenants of uh, Sterling first as tenants, which they were, or as investors, which they did not believe they were. They had no inkling they were so-called quote-unquote investors. And this is going to be a crucial um, issue to really drill down as to whether a fraud has occurred here, which the Senate has to look at, which of course ASIC is beholden to, you know, unearth and to, um, you know, red flag before people get into such a situation. He also raises the question of product disclosure statements, because if they're investors, that's what they need to have, uh, and whether such was provided to Sterling First victims. So watch this clip. Sterling First victims paid hundreds of thousands of dollars up front believing they would essentially receive a 40-year lease in return. This would appear to be a long-term lease where the victims are better classified as tenants instead of investors. Can you explain why someone in this situation would be classified as an investor instead of a tenant? The, uh, Senator, that, I'll, I'll, I will try to answer that question right now, but can I just go back to the exchange I had with the chair? Uh, there is an inquiry into, the, into these matters uh, before the Senate in a few weeks. And uh, we'll, I'll certainly, ASIC will certainly be addressing all these questions uh, uh, very comprehensively then. Uh, for today's purposes, the, um, it's certainly true that they were tenants, but many of them invested uh, as part in order to pay for their uh, uh, rental, if I can use that word, uh, in their capacity as tenants. They made investments in uh, preference shares or managed investment schemes of one form or another. And so for today's purposes, if I could just answer your question in that general way, they probably wore two hats and they were a tenant, but in order to pay uh, for their uh, rent, uh, they made investments which created, was intended to create a cash flow to pay for the um, rent. Now, we know that that all ended very, very awfully uh, for those people, and uh, we will definitely be exploring this in much more detail during the inquiry. So I, I hope that suffices for today. That, that, I can understand your position, and that does suffice for today. Um, so they're wearing two hats. So the investor hat, um, aren't they required to be provided with a product disclosure statement? Yes. Okay. Um, yeah. If, if it's a managed investment scheme that's been registered in accordance with the Act, they ought to have been provided with product disclosure statements and uh, as the inquiry... Thank you. Is, um, as we work through the inquiry, we will um, be, be um, making submissions about PDSs and what we found and what we did in connection with stock orders. It, it'll all be part of the submission we make in order for a comprehensive story for, Thank you. So you're aware that the Sterling First victim did not get a PDS. Um, and what's the current status of your investigation? If you could just tell me in detail. Yeah, yeah. The, the, can I just go back to your earlier question? I, I'm, I'm not saying today whether they did or didn't get PDSs. The, this is very fact sensitive. 
I do acknowledge they should have got PDSs, but I'm not sure what the position was with individual yeah, investors. Now, this next set of questions that we want to show come from ALP Senator Anthony Chisholm, and it's really key to note here, he is going to chair the inquiry into Sterling First and ASIC. Uh, and when you see his questions, what you'll recognise are a number of subjects that we have been consistently raising and hammering away at. Uh, the first of which is um, that ASIC is meant to be more business friendly. And this refers to an um, uh, AFR report from June this year, which said that Longo made it clear at his first public appearance he will be the business-friendly regulator craved by Treasurer Josh Frydenberg. So um, Chisholm confronts him about that and asks him if that will be the case. Then he goes on to raise the statement of expectations that was put out by Josh Frydenberg in January this year. It was a new statement of expectations for ASIC which said that the government expects ASIC to support Australia's economic recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic, basically which means to say that they should back off from the banks to enable them to pump up the housing market. Uh, and so Chisholm asks him if that is a binding statement. Um, and note too, at a certain point, that J Jane Hume, the Senator for Bankers, intervenes to help Longo in his defence, unlike when Christine Holgate was on the stand, she didn't say anything because she was too busy on her phone. Uh, Chisholm then raises, he says, why is there no reference to the Banking Royal Commission in you know, your, your procedures? Uh, and also, why is there no mention of the why not litigate issue that, that uh, Commissioner Hain raised during the Royal Commission? Because um, that approach to enforcement had been taken up by chairs of ASIC, Shipton and Crennan, who of course were unceremoniously ousted last year at the same time Christine Holgate was. Um, now, Longo hands that question, he makes a couple of comments uh, but he then hands it off to his sidekick and I'm not going to play that part of it because it goes on a bit. But basically that guy claims that oh, we won't be a softer enforcement um, regime. Uh, we have a range of, in, of enforcement tools including the wet lettuce of enforcement undertakings and goes on to say we can't litigate all cases. Our litigation will be more targeted with the quote unquote right litigation. <laughs> so we'll play that clip and you'll see it for yourself. Uh, thanks, Commissioner Longo. Uh, will ASIC become more business friendly under your leadership? Well, the implication is that business is going to get a free pass to do the wrong thing, not be followed up. The answer is absolutely no. <laughs> what, what, what business can expect from ASIC is essentially um, what the government has set up in its statement of expectations and in our statement of intent. And we are a business regulator. Part of our job is to encourage business, is to encourage consumers. And so there is a facilitation aspect to our mandate. Um, but we remain absolutely committed to, to the enforcement part of our mandate, which has come up a couple of times this morning. Um, but I think the, uh, you, you can expect ASIC to remain very uh, active in making corporate Australia accountable uh, for misconduct. ASIC has several key governance documents, a corporate plan, a statement of intent issued by the Commissioner and a statement of expectations issued by the Treasurer to ASIC. 
Given that ASIC is an independent statutory body, does the Treasurer's statement of expectations bind ASIC in any way? Well, the, go the, um, the government's entitled to express its expectations within the broader regulatory framework we operate under. ASIC is an independent regulator. We're accountable to Parliament. Um, we're accountable in all sorts of ways, parliamentary hearings like this one. Um, and so I think the, the, it's absolutely the expectation of government that we remain independent. And that, in fact, is in the letter of expectations itself. Uh, it is a prerogative government to express its views on policy matters to us. And um, indeed, under the PGPA Act, uh, I'm uh, myself and my fellow commissioners are required to discharge our duties in a manner that doesn't contradict uh, um, to the policy of the day. So it's, it's a nuanced operating environment, uh, if I can put it. Uh, it's notable that the Treasurer's new statement of expectations has no reference to the Banking Royal Commission. The previous statement indicated that ASIC should use its full regulatory toolkit and directs a substantial portion of, of its resources to surveillance and enforcement. The new statement of expectations says ASIC should minimise the costs of regulatory requirements for regulated entities and consumers and doesn't mention enhancing consumer trust or responding to misconduct. What do these change expectations mean for ASIC? Yeah. To, to be f in the document, there are several aspects of this document. It's actually the shortest. Sorry, Chair, you, you, you're just breaking up again. Yeah. You're just breaking up again. Sorry, if you could should start. I go off video? You think that'll... Yeah, why don't you go off video? That'll probably assist, oh. please. I was just trying to say, Senator, that the, um, the statement of expectations, as you'll see, is, is a very short document. It's very high level, and, that, and it's, it's the Treasurer's document, and he chose to you know, cast it in that way, and our statement of intent um, was similarly brief and high level. I and the Commission do not take from it, I think, the, the premise of your question. So, in other words, I, I don't see any... Uh, part of that statement of expectations is sending a message to, to um, be less active. I see ASIC's enforcement mandate is absolutely fundamental. It's in our statutory objectives and we do not read what's in the statement of expectations as sort of diminishing or diluting any of that. As I said earlier, I think the message is a bit more subtle and nuanced. We have a very complex range of um, objectives, statutory objectives, and they range from uh, being business facilitative and, and encouraging confident participation of consumers uh, to taking the enforcement action uh, when that is uh, warranted and necessary. So um, I hope that answers your question. I'm not, I'm not trying to avoid it. Um. Chair, just, just to be yes, clear and to put it on the record, the statement of expectations actually says <coughs> at paragraph 3.8 that in achieving its objectives and carrying out its functions and exercising its powers, the government also expects ASIC to identify and reduce misconduct risk through well-targeted and proportionate supervision, surveillance and enforcement activities. So it is in fact included in the statement expectations. Uh, thank you, Minister. Senator Chisholm. Uh, thanks. 
Uh, ASIC's new corporate plan has no mention of the previous Commissioner's why not litigate approach to enforcement activity. Why is that? That concept uh, came out of the Royal Commission. It is our view, and I'm going to ask Sarah, getting a lot of interference, I'm sorry. Um, the, I'm going to ask Deputy Chair Court to uh, have a go at answering that question, but essentially we see it as an incomplete statement of ASIC's approach to enforcement. Of course we're going to keep litigating and, the, and indeed um, uh, we, the, we may very well see more litigation rather than less, but what matters is that it's the right litigation, is that it's targeted, that it's proportionate, that it has impact, uh, and uh, so our commitment to enforcement and litigation is not is not, is not going to change. We, we just see the why not litigate is just being an incomplete way of thinking about enforcement and, and the various uh, issues we need to take into account. What's really interesting here, Lisa, is that a lot of these ideas we've published and had our supporters support to members of parliament and so forth. And sometimes we find them popping up all over the place mm -hmm. in ways that we don't even expect, but it's really the people that when people get engaged in politics and go and talk to their local members, get our material to them because they want their local member to know that this is this affects the nation. This affects the policy decisions of the nation. And last week, you know, I went we went out of the banks, particularly the bank here in Coburg that services 188,000 people. It was just arbitrary, arbitrarily closed, temporarily closed. No, no apologies, no communications to 30-year-old businesses or operations like ours. Lo and behold, after our show, <laughs> it was open. So I don't know whether it's our show or it was just... You the, did it. <laughs> <laughs> or whether it was just the public pressure. Yeah, that the, would have got hounded, no doubt. Yeah, and the arrogance of the banks to say, oh, no, you just go around to the corner of Australia Post, they'll look after you. Well, we couldn't do that. And, and there was no communication from the banks. So the, the arrogance of the banks, right, is, and, and what the banks are doing, that too is just an indicator of what ASIC should be looking at from the point of view of their work, of the regulation. But, at the, you know, it's like, as you said before, most of it's just a wet lettuce approach at the moment. Mm. You have to have a regulator that is a regulator and not some political plaything of the Treasurer. Yeah. Now, um, submissions to this inquiry on uh, this ASIC matter close on the 8th of November. So uh, for any of our viewers, if you are a bank victim of anything that could be ostensibly laid at the door of ASIC's negligence, make sure you do write a submission uh, in the info box below. You can find the links to any assistance that you need from us and you can contact us for more information. Uh, if you know other people who are bank victims, let them know we need to cast the net as widely as possible and there are going to be hearings. So this is just the beginning of this process and what we've seen happen this week in the Senate is really excellent. So we've got to keep pushing and continue that good progress. Now, we'll move on to our next topic, Afghanistan. We broke it, but you can't fix it. Um, now, the situation in Afghanistan since the um, US withdrew uh, in August and now the Taliban, of course, has taken over the leadership of the country, sits on a knife's edge because governments um, such as the United States and UK and others, including us, refuse to um, acknowledge that government um, as legitimate and work with them to, you know, begin to get some progress to stabilise the country. It might not be ideal, but then look what we did for the last few decades. This We brought it to this situation, but now 
the key protagonists are not willing to fix it. Um, and they don't not happy with the countries that do want to fix it, like China and Russia and the neighbouring countries that are saying, let's have a development approach to rebuild this place because that's the only way to reach peace and stability. So one of the first key things here, which the US can fix tomorrow, is that the, um, the United States has frozen uh, all of the funds that the Afghanistan government have at the US Federal Reserve exchange reserves and so forth worth eight to ten billion dollars. Now that means that the Afghanistan government cannot um, continue to pay people in government positions, which are 550,000 people that they pledged to keep on in order to have that continuity of government, but they can't pay them. They have a situation where there's a food crisis. 14 million people are headed for starvation. Um, they've been cut off from lending by the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. Uh, so if something doesn't give here and countries, uh, Western countries don't assist, it is going to reach a crisis point. Now I want to play a quick video here um, from Sky News and it's Paul Murray talking to uh, one of our favourite senators Kimberly, from the Labor Party, Kimberly Kitching. Uh, she is talking about the fact that China wants to come in and rebuild Afghanistan, and it can because it has the money, um, and implies, well, states explicitly that basically China is throwing money at this issue because it wants to add Afghanistan to its um, retinue of um, allies in the region as a counterweight against countries like India, which is working more closely with the West, supposedly. And she said, we don't want that imbalance. So we'll just roll that clip. Now, let's talk about uh, China and China finding a way to do what the United States, Russia and plenty of other people haven't been able to do for a very long time, which is to take over Afghanistan. They can do so without firing a shot. Why? Because they are there with the money. They say they are going to help the Taliban rebuild that country, which, of course, will mean they then have a foothold in that part of the world. Kimberly, we talk about this when it comes to small South Pacific nations, about how, oh, look, we'll lend you the money, we'll help you build all the stuff, and then, you know, push came to shove, they'd militarise these things. The idea that, uh, that Afghanistan is going to be funded uh, with Chinese money to rebuild, it's an extraordinary sign of how things can change and you don't have to fire a shot, just bring out the credit card. Mm. Well, Paul, I always worry when there are countries, you know, we were there in Afghanistan helping to really to create a democracy, to help people, to give people rights that really they haven't had before and they probably won't have again. Uh, well, hopefully, hopefully the Taliban uh, won't be there forever. But, no, we were there to make it a democracy. And I always worry when you see a country go from the column of democracies to the column of authoritarian regimes. Sure. And, of course, China is very interested in that. They're not interested in having a democracy there. Um, they want to just be able to deal with the Taliban. And I have to say, you know, they, they met the Taliban leader, uh, met with the, with the foreign minister, with Wang Yi. Um, you know, the Chinese foreign ministry is one, uses some of the most belligerent language of any of the foreign ministries in the world. So I think China doesn't come to this uh, in with pure, you know, in being pure of heart at all. And of course, that's a very complex geopolitical region. I mean, one of the reasons is, of course, is that uh, China wants to really to have Afghanistan there so that they can sort of negate India's influence. And obviously, you know, Taliban's been a long time ally. Uh, China's been a long time ally of Pakistan as well. Pakistan and India have many differences. So really, there's uh, a way that China's trying to limit down India as well in this region. And I think that, um, you know, India is one of our quad partners. 
Uh, we want India to do well. It's a democracy uh, and, you know, we don't really want uh, that imbalance um, where China has Afghanistan on the other side of, of India as well as Pakistan. I think that that is a, it's not, this is a very serious problem. Yeah, she says in there um, that we were there to give people rights. Well, you know, now the people are starving and what are you doing? I mean, you know, they had, we had our chance at restoring democracy. Look what we did. You know, mm. we need a real intervention now. Yeah, Lisa, our organisation's been around for, since 1988. You know, you go back and look in the 70s and the 80s when we first started and the only financial structures on the planet were effectively the IMF and the World Bank. And they used to impose these things called conditionalities on poor countries and say, oh, you can only develop if you do this, this and this. There was no source of credit to develop countries. There was no intention to develop these countries. So what's happened in the recent period, in the last 10 to 15 years, you've seen China massively internally develop itself and then become a friend to the world, which of course Kimberly Kitching hates. Now this friend, with, with another 120 other countries might as, says, no, we've got to develop Afghanistan. We've got the capacity to do it. We've got the technology. We've got the funds to do it. We're going to do it in partnership with Russia and other countries around. This is what's freaking the West out on most elements of geopolitical strategies and, and, and uh, policies around the world right now. China is on the scene where it wasn't 20 to 30 years ago. And the, the, the crimes that the IMF and the World Bank committed against many sovereign countries is absolutely disgusting mm. if you want to go back and have a look at them. Yeah, and at the moment you've got these two completely different approaches. So you have the US and the UK, Australia pushing these select little circles of networks and alliances such as AUKUS and the Quad to achieve their balance of power, as again Kimberly Kitching raised, alluded to that. And on the other hand, you have um, countries like China and Russia that are working with all the countries in the region. It's, it's not exclusive, it's all inclusive and things like the BRI, the Belt and Road have always been, you know, everyone's invited to join. Um, so you've had a series of meetings going on in Eurasia, some of them just recently hosted in Moscow where Russia and China and the US were invited but the US didn't even bother to show up. Um, you've had a broader meeting called the Moscow Format where they brought in all the other countries in the region including Pakistan and India, the Central Asian countries, all the stands, the Tajikistans, etc. Um, you've got the Shanghai Cooperation Organisation which is a, a large group of all those countries in the region and including China, India and Russia and 12 other, a, a dozen other um, observing nations and dialogue partners other than the ones directly involved. Um, and as um, President, Chinese President Xi Jinping said at the 20th anniversary of that Shanghai Cooperation Organisation event, he said this is a model based on partnership and dialogue rather than alliance and confrontation. Um, so it's really those two different approaches and what Australia has to decide is do we want development and cooperation with our close neighbours here in the Asia-Pacific region or do we want alliances and allegiances and balance of power politics that right now are leading us directly to war? Now, so. that's, a dead, that's actually the issue. I mean, we've long supported the idea of the Belt and Road. You know, peace through economic development. We have I've had conferences on it. They're on our website mm. talking about if you want to have real peace, you have to go with development. 
and we've got an enormous amount to do in our own country first and foremost, but then we can always turn to our neighbours and help them as well. Mm -hmm. And we can do it in partnership with China. China doesn't want to come down and invade us, right? It simply wants to participate as a good citizen in the world. Now, that's a, a lot of people have a lot of trouble with that. But that is in, in the, that's what we've seen with the BRICS grouping of countries, Brazil, India, Russia, China and South Africa. South Africa. So you have this collaborative uh, grouping of countries that still exist today, still working behind the scenes to develop themselves through a, this, this uh, what you said before, this idea of partnership and dialogue. Mm. Of course, there's a lot of, di lot of differences between countries, but through dialogue under goodwill, an intention for the benefit of the other, we call it, then you can overcome these things. But if you've got financial powers in the background, like the Bank of England, like this financial succubus that's been destroying our country for years and years and years in the minds of, in the thoughts and the, the words of the politicians down here because I think that's the only alternative, then we get pushed into war and it's just totally unnecessary. Mm, that's right. Now we can rise above our differences and begin to work together because when it comes down to it, everyone on this planet are human beings and we've all got the same interests at heart. Ultimately, we just have to find the grounds for the cooperation and do it. So um, contact us for more information. You can subscribe to our weekly magazine. You can contact us for a free copy if you haven't already got one and find out more that way. Don't forget to hit the like uh, button and share this as widely as you can. Get other people involved. That's all we've got time for this week. Thanks, Craig. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you again next week. Thank you.